Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. My name's Luke Mason. And my name's David Parker. So David, question for you. If you were a lawyer, how would you feel about striking a plea deal with the guy who killed the parents of one of your best friends in order to take down a bigger criminal? Where's the moral conundrum there for you? Frankly, I think I'd have to side with my friend. I don't think I would want to be in that situation. And I guess probably there'd be a conflict of interest. Yeah, do you think that you would even be allowed to be on I don't think case? so. Honestly, I think they'd probably be like, no, you're too close to this personally. So mm-hmm. yeah. Isn't that the whole point of lawyers? They're not supposed to be like personally involved in the cases of their clients, necessarily. Actually, yeah, I guess true. so. Like, I mean, that would be a total There's conflict. probably only criminal lawyers. Because, I mean, obviously, usually your lawyer is your friend, at least to some degree. Yeah, but this is probably pretty much criminal case. Although, interestingly, Rachel is actually trying to do the opposite yeah. of what you might expect someone in ex- her position yeah, to exactly, do to she, she the guy who killed. She wants to take killed. out this, uh, this big criminal. Yeah, because in case uh, you didn't read the title or the story of the episode <laughs> you're listening to today, we're doing Batman Begins, and there's the scene where Rachel is defending or trying to help out the guy who killed Thomas and Martha Wayne, Bruce's parents. And Bruce is obviously not happy about this. So, but yeah, I don't know. I was just yeah. thinking about that before I, recording. That also struck me that this is odd that she would be so flippant about it. Mm-hmm. And then so angry with him when he wanted to exact his revenge. Like, at least you'd be able to understand why he would want to do that. Yeah, today we're doing Batman Begins. The uh, We're going to start the Dark Knight trilogy. Uh, this has actually been something we've been hoping to do for a little while. And finally, the timing worked out of recording and watching. And I'm actually really stoked watching Batman Begins again. It had been a long time. So Batman Begins came out in 2005. All three movies, Batman Begins, Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises, were directed by Christopher Nolan. They weren't written by him. There's, I can't remember. I looked it up. I can't remember the names. Basically, like the characters in the story. Well, the characters are obviously based on Batman comics and whoever wrote those. And then I think they had another person like kind of help out with the story for the movies, or at least this movie. And I definitely remember watching all of them when they came out. But it had been, it'd been probably maybe like 10 years since I'd seen Batman Begins. How long had it been being, since you'd seen yeah, it? Yeah, I hadn't re- rewatched it in a long time, but I remember being very pumped about this movie when it came out and really, really enjoying it. And you were, I was kind of at that age where you wanted like a hero who was like standing up for the right principles. Mm-hmm. And also just, there's so many lines that they threw in that movie that I think were iconic for the kind of people they were trying to get to watch it, which is kind of like young people who want to like dream yeah. And do significant things and change the world. And there's a lot of archetypes in this film. Like, oh, yeah. It's actually insane. That was what I noticed, too. It's yeah. like, interestingly, like Star Wars, just like Lord of the Rings, um, when we these super famous stories kind of bleed into their archetypes, which 
is a challenge for a podcast like us in the sense that there isn't a lot of like details or tidbits that are uh, more idiosyncratic. It's all very kind of like low resolution, but major psychological influence. I still think there's so much worthwhile in that, that it's fun to do archetypal stories. Yes. I mean, if certainly for the adventure of them, but also the kind of like emotional resonance you get from. And I think, yeah, that's the thing. They're the kind of the best stories because they give you those feelings of like, I mean, I quote to my friends still to this day, the quote, like, why do we fall master Wayne? So we can learn to pick ourselves back up. I use that quote all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and you remember the scene in this one where, I guess he's still, he's not even a lieutenant yet. Like the cop Gordon, Jim Gordon, played by Gary Oldman. He says, we're on our own here. And then out of nowhere, the Batmobile just goes across the water. (laughs) Like it's such a, it's such a cliche and it's such a stupid moment in the movie. Well, no, no, it's a great moment in the movie because it's a cliche because a cliche in an archetypal movie is exciting. Well, like the cavalry has got to show up like in Lord of the Rings, you know, the charge of the room here. Nobody's coming. I'm coming. (laughs) Look for my coming on the third day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, we're going to do all three of them. And just as like a little bit of a reflection on this movie from when it came out in 05. So this was like right around the time where Christopher Nolan was starting to become, I guess, more well-known. Because in 2000, Memento had come out. Yeah. And I guess for me personally, it was around 2004 that I first saw Memento. So I was really excited about Christopher Nolan. And obviously, this is when he got huge because the year after this movie came out, The Prestige came out. And then he just started knocking them out of the park over and over again. And so it was a bit of a twofer because it was Christopher Nolan, who is this just like kind of awakening god of a director. This Batman movie was the first one to come out since probably the shittiest Batman movie had come out which was the one with George Clooney and Chris yeah, O'Donnell with yeah, the bat nipples. Not good. <laughs> no. And so I think that there was so much appetite for a much darker and grittier Batman movie because the one Batman and Robin from, I believe, I think it was 97 that that movie had come out. So this was eight years later. There hadn't been a major motion picture Batman since. I just think the culture was ready for a darker, grittier, more in-your-face, visceral Batman. And holy fuck did this movie deliver that hey man yeah well and it creates the origin story of batman in a way that you really enjoy it right he's kind of he's done the things the way he goes about living his life is far more impressive and than any other I, Mm -hmm. i would argue and like i always actually thought of batman begins as my favorite of the of that trilogy just because it it is so foundational and like you, you're building like the character development of Batman himself or of Bruce Wayne himself in this is just, I mean, the, really the movie's only about him. Mm-hmm, yeah, which is awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a little bit about Rachel, I think, uh, but it's not even about her. It's more like what she's doing. Well, more no, her there's a little bit about her. To him yeah, to, to a large degree, right? You watch this today. You want to give a quick little plot rundown? Of yeah. The okay. Movie? So essentially, uh, Batman or Bruce Wayne, his parents are killed by a seemingly a desperate person who is in need of cash. Where This is all set in Gotham, which is just a very veiled <laughs> picture of New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's like New York Plus. Yeah. Like it seems almost even bigger. And well, it's supposed seedier. to be like the most important city in the world, mm-hmm. even, yep. uh, that's said by Ra's Ghul. Anyway, 
Uh, his parents get killed. This is obviously very traumatizing for him. But before that happens, we're, we're introduced to his fear of bats uh, because he falls down a well, a bat swarm him and attack him, and this terrifies him. He then grows up a bit. There's a trial for the man who killed both of his parents. Though He's let go because he's exposed a bunch of information about one of the kind of criminal kingpins in Gotham. And after all that, ha- uh, and he goes to shoot this guy because he wants his revenge, but the guy gets shot before Bruce Wayne can shoot him. So he proceeds to basically run away, mm-hmm. disappear, apparently, from the world. And Was it for like seven years? Yeah, I think. For, and bas- it seems like he's learning martial arts and how to defend himself and how to become a crime fighter, it seems. As well. And he wants to get into the mind of criminals and figure out how they do things. And while he's over there, he is introduced to the League of Shadows. Yeah, I, I like it. Looks like they're in the Himalayas. Yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, and, and it's obvious that this is kind of there's an Asian theme to the to the training that he's receiving. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of probably Buddhist, and uh, he he's training ninjas. So it's also yeah. could be uh, Japan, I guess. But yeah, but the I mountain know, ranges look more Himalayas, like yeah. Nepalese kind of thing. So he gets trained by this ninja warrior who is a, supposedly a part of this great history spanning cult that has brought down civilization over and over again when it becomes too corrupted and they have this kind of ideology about how, what you do with crime and criminals and and what you do with rot and corruption yeah they have a very absolutist yes. attitude towards malfeasance i guess yeah they they kind of yeah, they see themselves as some kind of like destroyer angel purifier yeah purifier yeah, yeah exactly there's you know sometimes you got to burn the world down to rebuild it <laughs> foreshadowing <laughs> so after he's been trained he discovers that they're trying to force him to kill someone he refuses to one of the many choreographed epic battles of the of the film ensues he saves razgul's life yeah, but we don't know it's Ra's al Ghul yet. No, we don't. So Liam Neeson plays this guy named Ducard, who, as far as Bruce knows, is just a member of the League of Shadows, and he's actually the guy that recruits Bruce, who's fighting in Asian prisons, into the League of Shadows to train. And it's only at the end of the movie it's revealed he's Ra's al Ghul, or everyone's Ra's al Ghul kind of thing. But yeah, he's yeah. like the mastermind of it all, kind of, at the end. Yes, and then he goes back to Gotham to fight crime, I guess, and begins fighting crime as Batman. Uh, starts out kind of getting beat up a few times, not really knowing what he's doing, but obviously proceeds to, to having some pretty cool gadgets and doing some pretty cool things. And then we're introduced to the Scarecrow, who's kind of the the secondary villain of this. Yeah, his name is... for Ra's al Ghul. I can't remember his first name. He's Dr. Crane. He's played by Killian Murphy, and he's a... He's a great weirdo, hey? He is a great weirdo. And like a manipulative weirdo in this. And one of the things I like about uh, this is like Batman isn't invincible. Like this is the best part about this Batman in my mind. Like he gets beat up a lot and and Mm -hmm. things don't always go great for him. Uh, And so anyway, we we discover that there's this great plot to basically put uh, this hallucinogenic uh, psychedelic drug into the air that's breathed driving people mad and, and causing them to kill one another. Yeah, because it's a, it makes you see the thing you fear the most. It makes everything seem like a nightmare. And it's uh, derived from this flower that we see at the beginning of the movie in the Himalayas. And like the airborne burning of this 
is a hallucinogen. Like you said, that makes you see these things, but it's a small dose Bruce gets at the beginning, but he uses it to kind of like get over his fear and figure out how to win a fight. But by the end, the League of Shadows has stolen a, I forget what they call it, but it's like a microwave emitting a vaporizer. Yeah. <laughs> so it turns so all the water into that. Va- yeah, the question I had water. is that like humans are a high percentage water. So why isn't it just... Yeah, uh, you know what, David? <laughs> That's a question too far for yes, a superhero true. movie. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. the League of Shadows steals this device, which is going to turn the water of Gotham into vapor, water vapor. And which, they've already filled, or they've already got this um, chemical in the water, and they've been putting it in the water for weeks. Anyway, through a series of incredible feats, our hero stops the entire city from being, from exploding in this, or from having all the water supply in the city mm-hmm. uh, evaporated. With some help from Mr. Jim Gordon, the police officer, the only non-corrupt cop, it Who seems, the entire Lieutenant city. Lieutenant Gordon. Yes. And Rachel does find out that he is Batman, and then says that once he's done protecting Gotham, then they can be together, so. Mm-hmm. And we're left on a cliffhanger yeah. for a sequel, I guess. Which does come. <laughs> yes. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it's a great, like you said at the start, it's a great origin story. I think I really enjoy this one a lot because, I mean, this isn't about the movie. It's more the Batman lore. There's a deep tragedy to the Bruce Wayne origin story. You know, like yes. he witnesses both of his parents murdered be murdered. And what I kind of like about the gritty realism of the Batman story is that there's nothing really grand about his parents' murder. No. You know, it's in an alley after the opera. The person who murdered them wasn't, well, he didn't seem like ideological or anything. He was just a mugger in a mugging gone bad. And the young Bruce is kind of left with this random, chaotic horribleness in his life that no matter how you look at it, there's no real way to make any meaning or sense out of it. You know, it's just like a shitty thing happened. Your parents are dead. And my guess is, at least to get going into Bruce's brain as the movie's starting, he's, I think part of why he's searching for something more is because he just can't reconcile the meaninglessness of his parents' death with how hard he feels about it. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, he, like it's such a significant thing think, to his life, yeah. and yet... It seems like it was just random but happenstance. It, yeah, and uh, of course, the way our brains are constituted, we need to find meaning. Like, the, the meaning in the chaos is, it's how our psyches stay sane. Yeah, you don't survive <laughs> you know? very long if you don't have some kind of lot. If you're unmoored, right? If you're not, yeah, if you're not focused on something or directed towards something. And so, for in this case with Bruce, with the only meaning he can attach <laughs> to his parents' death is actually, like, literally his own meaning. Because there's nothing else outside of it. And I think this is, a, uh, I know I brought it up before, but I think it's a useful you know, example in fiction of Bruce having to reconcile his place in the world with the absurd. Yes. In the Camus yeah. sense of the term, right? Where it's almost a perfect encapsulation of this conundrum that Camus lined out, where Camus wrote about how we are being psychologically constituted to need to find meaning in a universe that is almost certainly devoid of meaning (laughs) and how to reconcile how to how to square that circle is kind of the art of living and i will say i think bruce does that like i do think yeah well that's becoming that's good that's why it's a good uh, origin story because it's all about well who was it who said i think it's 
Raz al Ghul, but he says you have to become an idea. Oh like yeah, you you have to like if you become an idea, you're way more powerful. If you're just if you're just you, mm-hmm. if you're just developing you with no meaning or story or yeah. symbol, like become a symbol. Well, that's another great. Well, um, and, and, and it I is Raz al Ghul. Yeah, he, he discovers that the meaning that he's trying to find is to becoming this is becoming this symbol, mm-hmm. and he wants to. And I think it's actually a very interesting worldview. He wants to bring fear to evil people. Like he wants them to experience mm-hmm. the fear they're they're imposing on mm-hmm. others and they're using on others in order to control them. Well, because maybe maybe the little bit of meaning he can get outside of himself for his vain memories of being able to protect his parents is like, what if the guy who killed his parents was just a little bit more scared to go hurt people? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things that struck me is with a lot of the stories we've been talking about, I actually see a lot of the Bruce Wayne slash Batman philosophy as kind of a a substantive form of liberalism. <laughs> Okay, Which is going to okay, seem strange for a vigilante. Yeah, that's not Just, exactly rule of law. <laughs> no, it's not. But it, but it's a, it's more of a kind of him as a less absolute judge, jury, executioner for people, but also a stand-in to like keep law and order a little bit, but not to the degree that. I mean, it is a comic book, so we have comic book villains. Even though I think Batman villains are the most sophisticated villains in any comic book. The villains of Batman are very absolutist, and so I guess anything not that seems more liberal, yes, <laughs> which is why true. Bruce Wayne might just seem more liberal than he actually Although is. Although I think I see what you're kind of saying in the sense that he he has rules for himself that, that he believe are civilized rules, like he won't use a gun. And exactly. He won't That's kill a great people. example. Yep. He doesn't kill. He, no. he wants to make sure that all the criminals actually have to answer for their crimes. But he doesn't want to kill To the law, though. Yeah, yeah. Like, he delivers criminals to the cops, essentially. Like, if he's allowed to just do what he does. Yeah, that's He doesn't kill them. He just ties them up and says, here they are. Here's what they did. (laughs) Do your job now, police. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good lead-in to my first kind of... Well, I don't know if it's an interesting thought. It's a thought I had. Because that very opening scene you were talking about, as a boy, Bruce Wayne falls down that well, and he is flooded by bats and this is terrifying for him right and i and and then it's mirrored two other times in the movie this actually the scenes with the bat was bats are incredible in this movie there's a scene about halfway through the movie a little bit before where as an adult he now is in the bat cave like it's his first time he finds the bat cave under wayne manor and the bats all fly past him again and then at the very end, all the bats actually help him escape yes. <laughs> from the cops when they're trying to get him. Figure it, he's really, really taken his fear and embraced it. Like, yeah. I think Raz al Ghul said, I, you took that a little too far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and with the whole intro that we get to Bruce Wayne's initial total terror of bats and then embracing them to be his identity and what he uses as essentially allies to be in the dark. I thought that this is a great movie version of cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. <laughs> Do you yeah, know what I mean? Confronting your fears. And I was only, I kind of knew about it, but I have only been more thoroughly introduced to the idea by reading a great book called The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. And part of it is that Greg Lukianoff suffers from depression. And especially in the mid 2000s, he really suffered, but he did CBT, which is 
the thing that you're afraid of, slow but consistent and incremental exposure to the thing you fear so that you can start to build up a tolerance against it. It's kind of like vaccinations against something. It's like psychological right, it's like mental, vaccinations. Yeah, mental vaccinations. And anyway, I couldn't recommend that book highly enough because part of why they wrote it is Lukianoff was noticing that all of the things that he was taught to not do in CBT therapy, students on campus were doing. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and he was like, well, wait a minute. This is going to really beat up their brains. Yes. <laughs> because he went through it. Anyway, plug for that book. It's a great book. But Bruce, I don't know. It seems to me like the scene in a movie where Bruce becomes Batman. I mean, this seems like a no-brainer. But it's when he becomes not afraid of bats and actually embraces bats, the animal, yeah. to be his own identity. Well, when he's standing in the cave and they are all swirling around him, right? Yeah. Like, that's kind of the moment that he becomes Batman. And his, he's got a great line on there, too, because he says, Bats frighten me, but it's time my enemies share my dread. Yes, yes, yes. See, there's so many great, like, Batman does some, and actually the new Joker movie, too, has some of the best one-liners you're ever going to see, right? It's yeah. just... There's something about this trilogy of movies that feel very non-comic book-esque. Yeah. Well, and I think it's because, and I've thought about this a lot, Batman's one of the only, I think he is the only superhero that has no special powers. Mm-hmm. It's just him being Well, human. he's just absurdly wealthy. And, and smart. Which is the most realistic superpower, I suppose. <laughs> true, true. Yeah, absurdly wealthy. So wealthy that he just buys the hotel or something. That uh... And even the stunts... It's almost impossible to make a superhero movie where the stunts are believable. But they just make it seem... Like, the fighting sequences seem realistic. And, okay, they're a bit hand-wavy about how he... They give very passing comments on how his cape works that he just glides. Or that everything else works that just works the way it does. Yeah. But once they do that hand-wave and it's in, it's not the most absurd and not even in the top half of most absurd things i've seen superheroes try to pull off with hand waving of their science and tech you know and at least it is all science and tech yeah or at least in theory i mean mean, like he's pretty um robust he can seems to be able to take more of a beating than i think the average person (laughs) might. it's true like he is very resilient (laughs) when it comes to fighting but so yeah i i liked how the movie showed that the only way that Bruce could get to the level that he needed to get to to be good for other people is he needed to be able to overcome the things that give him terror. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think I don't know how And he had to face this. them. Like yeah, he couldn't he... he couldn't not go into the bat cave. Uh, it's so on the nose in this in this story. He couldn't become Batman if he didn't go into If the he bat didn't cave. go into the bat cave and look the bats as it were, square in the eye and say, okay, so I'm going to embrace you instead of run you, from you. That you would say that you've done that with in your life. Oh, <laughs> I, should, I should be more expectant of these kind of questions <laughs> so I bring up this stuff, shouldn't I? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know, like, because if we're like specifically about something like CBT, it has to be something I'm afraid of. And I, I really don't know if I have fear in the conventional sense of the term anymore other than like i remember being scared i mean the big one is fear of death but i feel like i've as much as possible overcome that with just reading about it and listening to people who are going through the process well maybe i'll 
project a future CBT or at least tell you something I am afraid of, sincerely afraid of, it might sound a little stupid, but I also wouldn't know how to CBT it exactly. <laughs> so I have a sincere fear that other people who I don't know would find me boring. Right. Like I honestly feel, and my defense mechanism is well, I wouldn't believe you. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, the defense mechanism is like, well, I'm not really interested. Like, well, that's about you then, yeah, not about me, (laughs) right? right. Like that's the that's the walls that come up from my brain where I'm like, well, you're just not a thoughtful person then, (laughs) you know, because that's (laughs) the petty reactionary way we deal with protect ourselves from yeah things we fear. But I do, I do feel like. And I, I don't know, I've, it's a weird thing. I, like, I've heard comedians kind of talk about this too. Like, pe- I guess people who are entertainers, because I like to entertain. If I'm in a room, especially with people I don't know, and I'm talking or I'm making jokes or I'm telling a story, I am kind of half gauging but the reactions. Whether boring or not. Yeah. You know. Even when I tell a joke to people I know, I still catch myself looking around at their faces to see how they react. To see if they know that I know what I'm doing. Right. And if that entertains them or not. Right. And so I do have a little bit of a vulnerability around people finding me interesting or not. Because I know I make a joke about, oh, the cardinal social sin is to be boring. Yes. But I'm not really joking. Right. Like, I do think that. Per- yeah, but I yeah. think it about myself the most, too. So I don't know. What would you, how would you s- cognitive behar- behavioral therapy that out of a I person? I guess maybe you'd have to, like, go into a to a social situation and just be boring the whole time and not, like, say anything funny and... And, and see if people still like me. And literally just, you know, maybe be like mopey and, and just sit in the corner and not talk to anyone for the... Well, I don't know if I... When I am in a social situation with people who I am not optimistic, whether because of things... I, like, if they're people I know well, who I don't think I quite vibe with in a humor or personality sense, I do clam up. Right. And I don't talk. And I kind of keep to myself, and I'm just kind of waiting for, as it were, my people to show up. Right. Do you know? Yeah, I know what you mean. And so maybe maybe it's going into those situations and being like, oh, well, I'm just going to talk anyway. See what happens. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, that has to be so – I have to be so aware of this, even the like individuals, individual people I'm with yeah. to know which is the right way. Or maybe – I have to start being okay, more okay with the idea that there's some people I don't have to try to entertain. Yeah, maybe there's some people you just, you can just, you know, well, from have a, a conversation with. From the point of view of the universe, there's <laughs> it's statistically impossible that there won't be people who They're don't just, care about my yeah, thoughts. Exactly. <laughs> you exactly. Know? And and I had that that line of thinking has seeped in more, and so I I think I am getting better with that kind of thing, but. I do have a not small amount of residue of a fear of being boring. That's hmm. that's probably my biggest fear, actually, if I would say so, because I... I so mean, did you have a well moment? Like, was there a moment where you fell into the well and, <laughs> and like, the bats attacked you? Were you boring once and that, like, traumatized you? Um, I don't know. Maybe it's, like... I feel like the jokes that I tell or the ideas that I have, I I guess maybe I want them to be more than just entertaining. I want them to be thought provoking or 
something that impacts someone so much that they reach out later to talk about it. It's definitely a prime motivation for this podcast. Yeah. yeah. Maybe it's, it's, you know what? Fuck that. It's the prime motivation (laughs) for this podcast. My number one goal with this was creating a community of like-minded people who wanted to talk about really interesting stuff or stuff that I find really interesting. And so I guess part of the fear of that is that when that doesn't happen, I'm like, well, what's missing? What's Mm. the missing variable there? And it doesn't really bother me. Like I'm kind of being totally honest right now about something that is true about me, but actually doesn't on a day-to-day basis yeah, eat not, away at me that much. You. No, yeah, no. Yeah. Because I but actually again, do- with Batman, was the bat thing something he was thinking about every day? I don't know. Probably not. Like, how often are bats kind of introduced into your life? Like, when was the last time you saw a bat? Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> I don't know. It's been a very long time. <laughs> yeah. But with him, it's definitely like always there. Yeah. It, it, it's the actual fear of the bats is guiding his behavior in a lot of other things. Well, they do a good job of connecting the fear of the bats to the death of his parents, too. Yeah. Right? And that's, well, there's a bat in that scene, isn't there? There's a bat in the opera. Like, there's some bats, mm, yes, and that's this right. terrifies that's right. him, and he wants to leave, and then his dad, being a good dad, is like, oh, I just, I needed some Oh, I totally air. forgot about that, because psychologically, like, this is an unbelievable kind of story, but Bruce would doubly be scared of bats and beat himself up because his fear of bats killed his, killed his parents, parents as it exactly. were right? because they wouldn't have left the opera if he hadn't insisted on it and yeah i that, totally forgot yeah. about that well and that's kind of and then like razal ghoul like he says it wasn't your fault that your parents died it was their it was your father's fault like attacking <laughs> the like quality of his father and like, yeah he's pretty brutal to him throughout this but well yeah. just razal ghoul has his own un- well, he's inflexible perspective of gotham yes <laughs> he just really wants to destroy gotham mm-hmm. did anything come to your mind about a cbt moment that you could or have had or might have yeah i think um for me if i'm being really honest it's not being uh respected like i have a deep fear of people not i don't know i don't know where it came from i've been, I've been trying to figure this out but for me it's people not recognizing some kind of greatness in me, which is a really kind of fucked up thing. (laughs) Do they have to recognize a greatness or is it enough that they take you seriously? I think, yeah, well, I want to be, but I also want to be like recognized for what I do. And like, this was something that I, that one of my good friends told me that I have, that really changed my perspective on things. But one of the things he says is you can't, you can't base your life on other people giving you something. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, it was like, I'll do all these things and then I'll be given what I what I want. And then the, re- the reality is you don't be, you're not given what you want in life. And if and if other people have the power to give you something as opposed to you taking it yourself. And this is another thing I love about the Batman story that I hadn't thought about until I rewatched it this time was he does something that's incredibly noble when he walks away from everything and just goes into the world. And then the, what is the nobility of the thing that he's doing? It's that he's giving up everything to forge something. Do you mean when himself. he's going to Asia? Yeah, when he just okay, leaves. Yeah. When he just leaves all his wealth and everything behind and says, they're going to be looking for me. But what he's doing in that moment is he's like, none of this matters if I can't fix what's wrong with me. Right. And yeah, that's yeah, that yeah. I feel weak and powerless and out of control and and filled with a desire for vengeance 
with no real quality of, of how I'm going to fix things, right? So I guess in my case, the big realization I had and maybe the confronting of that fear was, well, what if people don't respect you? What are you going to do, right? And having not been respected, sometimes it's just rage, right? Yeah. And I guess it's not a fear, except I think often the way, we're, like what you were saying, well, I just say, well, that's their problem. Right. Yeah. That's your response. That's defense mechanism one hundred and one. Mechanism is ignore. Mine is rage. Yeah. And recognize me. (laughs) Yeah. You you will be forced to recognize me, kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how I would go about conditioning myself. Like, how do you condition yourself not to be respected? I think a lot of it comes down to not caring whether people do it. Well, I I think it. um, Well, I might put on my clinical psychologist hat for a second that I don't own. (laughs) I guess I would ask you to ask yourself what you are doing a task for. Yeah. Because if you're doing the task for the recognition, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but make sure that you know that. Yes. Before you do the task, because I guarantee you this will be something in psychological literature. If you think you're doing something for reason A but you're really doing it for reason B, if reason A comes about, you'll be disappointed and you kind of won't know why. Right, right. <laughs> you'll be frustrated with yourself and no one will have sympathy for you because they'll be like, well, you got what you wanted. And you'll be like, Because oh. you wanted A. But and, you didn't want A. You but you didn't want B. A. You wanted B. So figure out if you want A or B on any like very specific task. Like this one job I have to get done today at work, am I doing it because I want for A or for B? Right. And do and asking yourself that before. And then you can get into a more abstract, like, well, why would I want A versus B? And I think that that's healthy, like thinking about it like that. Because my experience with humans is that even the people who would give you recognition are, you know, like that, that it just feels something that's fleeting. Yeah. Or people yeah, could that's be the thing. Well, I guess everything's fickle, fleeting. Right. Yeah. Everything is fleeting. Yeah. Sick transit Gloria. <laughs> <laughs> or seek transit glory, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that that's actually kind of what a lot of like stoical philosophy is based around is that the admiration of your neighbors is this comes and goes, yeah. you know? Well, I think that's what, again, going back to Batman, why I like what he does so much. He isn't interested in what people think of him. In fact, what they think of him is so unimportant that he doesn't want them to even be a, he himself doesn't even want to be associated with it. Yeah. Like I have a great deal of admiration for people who will do things without getting any credit for it because I find it so hard to fathom <laughs> yeah. that way of living. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I want to trumpet my victories to the skies. Right. Yeah. And I want to, and I want to be like recognized for them. And so Batman is such an antithesis yeah. to me. Well, and do you notice too, he even kind of doubles down on that attitude by making Bruce Wayne in the world seem ridiculous. Yes. So yes. he's he's either not known or thought a fool. Right. <laughs> Depending on because which to, alter to, ego. To obfuscate yes. what he, his, his mission yeah. and purpose, right? Yeah. And I, I admire that a lot. It's, it's, so, it's a foreign concept to me, but I think that's one of the reasons we like him as a hero mm-hmm. because, again... Unlike almost any other hero, whether, I mean, Spider-Man is, is an example of this, but almost no other hero is an example of someone who is only doing it in the service of the good yeah, 
and desires no credit for it. Now, when you're as rich as Bruce Wayne, do you really need credit for anything? Maybe, yeah. Your Maybe alter ego is already a billionaire. So. That's his out. I mean, he can just go into the lab and play around with all his tools and gadgets and toys and Batmobiles, <laughs> et cetera, right? <laughs> yeah, he gets a tank, right? Yes. Now that you're bringing it up, it's making me think like, well, how did he get that way? How did he transform from the searching young man in the prison to someone who can focus like that? And I guess it's when he's fighting in the temple, the, the League of Shadows temple, and he's taken the, like he's gotten his ass kicked a bunch already. And he's taken that hallucinogenic flower and then taught to fight. And he, like he learns, right? Like he cuts the soldier's arms so that Raza Ghul doesn't know who is who because his arm is cut. So he thinks it's the wrong person. And right. so it's, I mean, I will say in all three movies, one of the things that actually really impressed me about Batman is that you, so you're always used to the villains having a plan or a backup plan that hasn't been revealed in the narrative that they bring in late and they're like, oh, we didn't think about this. Now the hero's really in for it. Yeah. And they do do that in, in Batman, but they also have a cool thing where in, I think in like almost all three movies, certainly the last two, Batman also has a plan that hasn't really been revealed in the narrative and then comes out to give him like a superpower at the end as well, you know? Yeah, and I, true. and I thought that was really interesting how Bruce Wayne is kind of and, realizing and he needs a And it's cool that in this, in this one, he's been trained by the villain yes. to think that way. So in a sense, like you said, it's a, dir- a grittier version of Batman and mm-hmm. it's because he's kind he he is the Dark Knight, mm-hmm. right? And so what I like about the way that he's set up as a fighter in this movie is that he goes through the trials of learning. He defeats the people who are intransigent and say, no, you have to kill this guy. But then he uses that compassion that Ra's al Ghul derides him for to save Ra's al Ghul's life. And I think that this is kind of what I mean as the beginning of Batman as a kind of liberal liberal conscience, maybe. Maybe not like as a liberal, but, right, but, but as, as a, a liberal, liberal conscience guy. kind yeah. of motif of okay i am going to defeat you but i'm not going to destroy you yeah. like he saves razagul or razagul wouldn't have and i think that that actually as an archetype the distinction between those two people is an unbelievably salient one in human social and moral evolution not just killing your prisoners or not just yeah. destroying them but figuring out a way to do it it's more difficult but it's more humane. And it does seem to me like the fundamental difference between Batman and all of the villains is that. Right. In the movies, right? Like his, his, when he wins, you don't die. You just face the consequences. Yeah. But if you win as the villain, you, like Batman dies because fuck it, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know? We have an ideology or a chaos theory to keep up. Well, yeah, it's, it's that he is limiting himself because of principle and the funny thing is all of his villains are chaos or insanity <laughs> yeah right they're all and he is order mm-hmm. right and 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 ruthless order on himself certainly so, to certainly the point of yeah. making his life it would be way easier if he could just shoot people but the villains in this these movies certainly i don't actually know enough about the batman that's true i don't know all, to know think, about I think the other ones we know the joker and the scarecrow and mm-hmm. and harvey dent all chaos all chance here was something I loved when he revealed himself to Rachel, right? Because Batman doesn't share his alter ego with anyone except Alfred. And 
Rachel, and I'm pretty sure Lucius knows. Yes. But it's not explicit. Right. And then he also has a relationship, but only as Batman with Gordon. Yes. There is a scene at the beginning where Gordon has been kind to him as a kid, which is why that's the cop that that he kind of that he trusts to, yeah. when he's older. But I liked that even when there was no one to trust, he still had to trust someone. And it made me think of this little line, if you are loved by individuals, you don't need to be liked by crowds. Mm. And there is a... I think there's just something cathartic in the human personality to need to trust somebody. Yeah. Like the desire to trust is so, so huge in our emotional and cathartic way of being that we, uh, people will often (laughs) spill secrets that it's not in their interest to tell someone, but just for the feeling like you can trust somebody, you know? Yeah. Which is funny, spilling secrets. (laughs) <laughs> in essence is then not being trustworthy yourself. well uh, yeah i mean I maybe that's the wrong term secrets, yeah. like not You're even telling your own personal secrets. well the danger that could come to batman and even rachel and anyone he knows if they find out if any if the wrong people find out that bruce wayne is batman is dire yeah there's a lot of people who want batman dead. <laughs> purely logically it makes no sense for him to tell anybody that he's batman mm. that bruce wayne is batman but he can't not tell rachel Right, right. Because, but I like how he tells her too. Yeah. He's very he, he quotes something that she'd said to him back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He does that actually. He kind of is a little bit leaving breadcrumbs a few times for people. Yes, uh, but maybe not even just in Batman. But I just even when it's so much smarter to keep your mouth shut about your opinion on something, it just feels better to tell someone. And I think that's like an evolved thing too. Builds bonds. It builds trust. bonds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why? It's why I. I don't know. Like my 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 opinion of right. why Batman needed to tell Rachel is that if you have strong bonds with like individual people, it gives you such a bulwark against crowds of people who will not like you. And as we see in the movies, crowds of people don't like Batman. Yeah. Yeah. And, and true. But his knowledge that individuals know who he is and believe in him, I think gives him the sustenance emotionally and psychologically to not really worry about that as much, not let it destroy him. So I think this is an incomplete thought. I think there's some grand connection between trust relationship building and being able to let most things be water off a duck's back that might otherwise hurt you if you didn't have strong relationships with individuals. Yeah. You know, yeah, because it's interesting. In a sense, Batman doesn't trust almost anybody. And and again, it's like anything. If you just give something without discretion, right? If you're just indiscriminately handing something out like trust, then there's nothing special about it. Yes. like there's If everyone knew who the Batman was Bruce Wayne, it would be special for people to know that Batman was Bruce no, Wayne. No, there's a... There's a premium on the knowledge yeah. in the way that it is. But that's why I think when I say that term, if a, and I would even phrase it like this to give it a bit more grandeur, if a soul is loved by individuals, it doesn't need to be liked by crowds. And I mean in that expression, both the most vital form of the word love and form of the word individual. Right. Because it is those specific relationships that 
I think, are the sustenance. It's who they are. Yes. Yeah. Once you know someone believes in you and cares about you, I think the great darknesses of the void seem a little bit less dark and voidy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I think that that's a... I I don't even know if that's what Batman's doing, but it's what it reminded me of, and so I thought I'd bring it up. Hey, everybody. Dave and I just want to take a second to say thank you for listening. Making this podcast has been a great experience, and we really appreciate all of you who choose to spend some time with us. Part of our goal is to be super open about everything we talk about on the podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, ideas, feedback, clarifications, or praise, please send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Also, if you get your podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you get notified when a new episode is released. If you feel so inclined, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That is a really good way to help new listeners find the show. And please pass the show along to anyone who you think may enjoy it. Again, thank you so much for listening, because as I'm sure you have gathered, we love talking. We definitely need to talk about Raza Ghul. Yes. Because he is... Okay, here's what I really liked about Raza Ghul. He is both the introduction to Bruce Wayne and then therefore Batman of the things that make Batman great and yet is the one who wants to stop Batman eventually. Because yeah. Batman, so, here's another thing that's interesting about Batman is he loves his city. He really cares about his geographic location, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't know if anyone, I'm sure some of you guys have listened to or read Napoleon of Notting Hill by G.K. Chesterton, but like, I love that idea of civic geographic local being grounded and rooted in a place you know and feeling like you have a duty to protect your home yeah i mean i guess it helps that bruce wayne probably owns half of the (laughs) of the city but Mm -hmm. like i really think that that's something that's not talked about a lot but batman almost all of what batman's doing isn't for individual people yeah it's for a municipality yeah, it's very interesting. And in like and in that sense, it's like an idea. Yes. <laughs> like the idea of Gotham, I think is what's important to Batman too. And then the individual people and the in idea it. that like that there's a redemptive Batman Gotham can be saved, mm-hmm. right? There's still good people in Gotham. Well, and cuz that's the argument he's making to Ra's al Ghul. He's like, "No, there's it isn't the end. It doesn't need to be destroyed." I do have that in okay. here <laughs> yeah. too. But the the that's a great set up too because like i mentioned a little bit earlier both batman and raza agree that there are problems with gotham right yeah but the difference is their attitude towards the solution because batman's attitude is well let's fix it and raza attitude is no let's destroy it and i honestly think that is the fundamental attitude difference of what i'm referring to as the liberal conscience right now and they're using the same tools to different ends Right, so the training for both of them, the overcoming your fears, the becoming a symbol, being stronger than you were, being better than you were, all of the lead up to then the decision. And yeah. I actually, I think it's interesting because one of the things in society that we seem to be obsessed with is personal development and self development. But to what end? Yeah, right. Because you could become really, really, you can become everything you've ever wanted to be, but if you're still not deserve or you're still not serving something greater than yourself, what are you achieving? Well, Batman is not a good movie if he never returns to Gotham. No. <laughs> no, if he just wanders the world. How goddamn boring would this movie be <laughs> if he just spent that his whole life in the Himalayan Alps 
perfecting learning, his art. Learning everything, perfecting the art, and Gotham Falls. Yeah. Right? And, and Raz al Ghul. Well, I actually, quick aside, I actually had this kind of discussion a few months ago with some people at work about the idea of leadership and how there is a kind of, lately there's been this, it's like a idea of the day <laughs> or the like, it's 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 popular right now right. this idea yeah. at work about leadership and i was like look i have nothing against leadership i think it's something great to talk about but i'll use the metaphor of hockey like i don't practice hockey to get better at practicing hockey no i practice hockey to get better at playing a game of hockey whereas there's something on the line well that's the thing everyone wants to talk about leadership where are you going like that, <laughs> oh this that, is exactly this is what one i mean of my is pet that peeves. it's like if you don't take you're learning from the practice arena to the real life world arena. What's the point? Yeah. You know, there is no point. And I don't know, like, I don't know enough about self-help to say, what are you doing? If it just stays with you other than maybe there are, okay. Steel man, the version, there's probably people who have a harder time in the world psychologically than I do, who might need these kind of things. And I'm not going to judge that. But I think that it's an internal thing, I guess. If you can honestly say that you spend your entire time doing self-help to continually solve a problem you genuinely have and not just use buzzwords, then I would respect you for needing to do that or whatever the right term would be. I just think it's easy to get caught up in almost a culty way of talking about things where it's all internal and it's all the world is all into you and there's nothing then that to well, give outward and everybody's to the a leader well i'm yeah. sorry everyone can't be a leader like or at least you can't i think you could be a leader in different arenas in different arenas of your life yeah, yeah. you know yeah, what i mean that's true because i think that there are things that i take the lead on that i and then other areas where i'm just like i have no interest in right <laughs> being leading on, this. Leading yeah, on yeah. this thing so anyway, all of that to say that, yeah, Bruce Wayne, like this is a boring movie if he doesn't take his learning from the practice arena to the game arena, as I would say. And I think the problem, the thing is if you go to the game arena, you have something on the line. <laughs> if you stay in the practice, you don't. Right. And so it's a risk to go into the real game or the real world. And that's why I think we respect Batman so much. Because he's always taking these risks. He's taking these yeah. risks all the time. And, and with no, get beat up. Yeah. no admiration <laughs> coming no. his way either. In fact, all the police off or everyone seems to want to get rid of him. Yeah. So. And so I thought this was funny about Raz Ghul is because I was thinking about, okay, this movie from his perspective, he ends up training the only person who can stop him. <laughs> and, then and then that dies. guy saves his life. Yes. And then he can't beat him the second time because Bruce Wayne knows this is what he'll do. He knows he'll t- try to take the trains at the end. Yeah, how so does he, he know that though? Because he knows... Okay, I don't remember for sure because I watched this movie like three weeks ago in right. prep for this, to be honest. I believe he knows because he has the right guess at what Ra's Ghul wants to do, which right. is destroy Gotham. And he knows the best way to do that is to get to Wayne Tower because he'll want to destroy. The the best way to get there is through the trains. So if he can sabotage the trains, he knows that's what Ra's al Ghul will do. So he's actually one step ahead of Ra's al Ghul's plan, even though he doesn't know exactly. But it's great because 
he doesn't know exactly what the plan is, but he knows that Raza Ghul, because Raza Ghul has demonstrated to Bruce that he is an ideologue. Yes. Bruce can guess what he's going to do with much greater accuracy because he knows what the ideology tells him to do. Right. You know? Yeah, that's true. That's understanding something, but then transcending it. Why I think Raza Ghul is such a multifaceted character, even though he's ultimately outwitted by Bruce, is that he's actually the guy who introduces us, the movie viewers, and Bruce to the idea of you need to become more than a man. Yes. You need to become a symbol. You need to become an idea. Because people fear ideas or trust symbols. And I know we talked a lot about that in our American Gods episode, but I wanted to get your thoughts a little bit on, do you think legends can be crafted in that way by specific people? Or does Razagul just know that if you light a match, there's more than enough wicks around to start burning? Well, remember how you earlier in this podcast were saying that everyone needs meaning and then I think everyone attaches their meaning to symbols. I mean, that's how we communicate yes. through symbols. Like on the most fundamental level, that's what language is. It's just, mm-hmm. just symbolizing things because, I mean, this this goes back to Thomas Aquinas and the accidental reality of something and the substantial reality of it, right? <laughs> Every chair is different, but the idea of the chair is universal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so why is that? Why do we think... Why do we think in the in the universal? Well, because there's no way we could think in the specific all the time. Like we couldn't navigate reality if we were doing that. So on a very basic level, humans need symbols. But it goes beyond that in that we also need identity. Mm-hmm. Just today, uh, while we're recording this, uh, Tim Urban put out his most recent post about <laughs> uh, uh, on his the Christmas story of comes us. early for David. <laughs> the story of us about political parties and ideology. Very good. Highly recommend. But. It all comes back to the idea that if we didn't have symbols to rally around, we wouldn't have community. If we didn't have things that we can be both be interested in, you and I, if we didn't, if we didn't care about the things we care about, we wouldn't have a podcast because it'd be like, mm-hmm. there's no similarity. We have nothing to talk about. There's yes. no communication. <laughs> so Sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> See, that was a different form of communication. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think that in the in this case, okay, so can one person do it? No, I don't think so. Because if only one person does it, and they're just doing it in a void, how are other people going to believe in it? Mm-hmm. Like, essentially, you, you need affirmation of the symbol being a symbol. Now, I think one person can can light the spark. Mm. If, you know, if there's not any dry tinder around. It's not going to go very far. Mm-hmm. So I think this goes back to archetypes. Yeah. In order to create a really, truly powerful symbol, you need ideas that are way more uni- universal and less specific. Because the more specific you get on an idea, and this is why when we talk about movies like Batman or Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, the reason they resonate with so many people is because people are like, well, I've felt that. Really, what have they felt that exact emotion? No. But the generalized nature of the emotion that's being expressed can be elevated as a symbol. Mm. Think about the number of times people quote lines from books or movies, like Batman, you know, why do we fall down so we can learn to get back up again? Like there, There's all kinds of different lines. Well, from Lord of the Rings, you know, essentially you don't get to pick where you're from. You know, you just get to pick to 
what to do with the time that's given to you. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, Spider-Man, um, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> yeah. All of these things, they're symbols. Yeah. Essentially, they're symbols. And, and I think Batman himself, not just, oh, yes, I'm making a symbol because Razo Ghul told me to, but as a cultural phenomenon is a symbol too. Mm-hmm. Um, not just in the fictional world, but in the real world. Right. And what is that symbol expressing? And I think it goes back to what we were already talking about. But what is the symbol that Raz al Ghul is creating? He's creating like an Illuminati-like symbol, like a, a minis- mysterious, you know, doers of right, like the secret society of those who who will protect the world from yeah. itself. Well, he seems more interested in the symbol of terror. Well, purification. I think yeah. you said that earlier. I don't. I don't think he's even interested in like what is he going to get by making people scared. I don't think he's interested in causing fear as much as he is eradicating weakness and yes. corruption. And but and I mean the idea of Batman is not on the table when he's training Bruce. But I do think what he's trying to instill in Bruce when he's talking about. You can't just be a vigilante. You need to be. You need to become a legend. You need to become more than a man in the minds of your enemies. I think, at least in the narrative, he's hoping oh, to teach you, that this... to Bruce, so that Bruce can go back to Gotham and start to terrorize. Not, Gotham. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe terrify is the wrong word, but be a be a symbol of Gotham's. The people of Gotham realizing that oh man, shit's going bad, and there's no escape. Yeah. And so I think in that sense, he's wanting to draw fear out of the people. For Raza Ghul, it's not fear for fear's sake. It's He sees Bruce as a possibly great weapon to use against Gotham. Because, yeah, it's interesting because even though he's probably not the most interesting of the villains, I, I think I would argue the Joker is, I think, most oh, yes, people would agree. Oh, yes, definitely. But he is the most antithetical Mm-hmm. Right? He seems to be. Because he's the most similar. He's the most antithetical to Batman because Batman's love... Like, I don't think the Joker really cares about Gotham. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think the Joker really cares about anything. Yeah. He just He's living in his chaos. Mm-hmm. You know, He's embracing... And in that new Joker movie, he's just kind of embracing the, the foolishness of everything. Well, if we're going to talk about the quadrants we do, Ra's al Ghul is hard heart, hard mind. Yeah. And Batman is hard mind so. and like uh, wants to be like is kind of hard hearted, but like manages to go into the soft hearted right. aspect of it. True. And I think that is best encapsulated in when in during the training, Raza Ghoul says to Batman, death is not considerate or fair. Now here's an interesting thing. I think that's a very true statement. Death is not considerate or fair. Tragedy strikes seemingly without meaning so it's important to remember but the, th- the difference between Raza Ghul and Batman is that Raza Ghul takes this as a final statement about humanity like that's all there is mm. and Batman takes that as a true but now what do we do statement yeah about humanity and I think that that's a really useful difference to think about their mentalities about the world because like if we talk about and this is again this liberal idea that comes from Rorty is that the liberal hates cruelty above all things else in the social world and Jordan Peterson talks about life is tragic enough don't add more malevolence to it yeah because Raza Ghul sees death and suffering as final there isn't an actual 
moral overlay or or there's no moral supposition against him adding to that because that's just the way it is like he's almost clinical in his well i actually can't really make you suffer more than the world makes you suffer so it doesn't matter if i kill you or not right batman doesn't share that opinion batman says no you're right the world is terrible but we don't need to add to that and yeah. in fact we can try and, and we, do we, everything we can, we can to, some to mitigate it yeah which is why i think he is a stand-in for the liberal conscience <laughs> Because yes. that is the liberal conscience. Yes, because he hates to, cruelty. To figure out the piecemeal mitigating factors that we can do to to subvert the human extra layer of malevolence that we don't need to do. The thousand small sanities. Yes. And so I liked that a lot about that differentiation between Batman. Why Razagul is so intransigent, like I said before, he's got this line, criminals survive on the indulgence of society. I warned you about compassion, Bruce, because <laughs> he fights know, him in the, the Bruce. Big, yeah, big on the compassion. Thing. And this is an interesting thing about Batman villains. I'm trying to think. I mean, we're going to talk about this a lot more, so I don't want to spoil it for the other movies when we talk about yeah. them. So I'll just stick with this yeah, one. Let- so Raza Ghul says that he's just destroying Gotham because it deserves it. Not any, like I'm not emotionally attached to destroying Gotham. It's just the way it needs to be. But I think he betrays that when he says that line about criminals survive on the indulgence of society there's just a hint of anger in him about that you know like hey these people fucking deserve it oh and he might even he might even say that people deserve it but i think raza ghoul would almost take it as an insult if you were to say to him yeah but you're getting a little bit of personal satisfaction out of doing this to the criminals of Gotham, aren't you? And he'd be like, "No, this is just the way it is yeah he would he would claim principle, mm-hmm. but it's obvious obsession. I think that he's not being totally honest with himself about yeah. his own motives, which is <laughs> what a fucking great thing about a villain, yeah, and especially a villain who thinks they're above normal human morality, yeah, right? we've got a <laughs> Because a crime who's and punishment situation here, right? Where he yeah. thinks he's he's above, he's the great man. The great man does, I mean, he's like the fall of Rome, the plague. This long line of people who basically said, we know better. His philosophy with himself in the League of Shadows is that he's actually beyond a man. Yeah. He's an idea. Yes. Well, nope. No. He still died in a train crash. <laughs> so his, I'm not going to say it's a delusion exactly in him i think it's a subconscious suppression right it's a little different like delusion i feel like the evidence has to be overwhelming and then denied for it to be delusion suppression could just be not being honest with yourself right and i think he's not which is a great fatal flaw in a villain and that's what's so interesting about these batman movies is that I think all of the villains have a fatal flaw in a way that usually in a tragedy, the hero has a fatal flaw, which takes them down, which is, you know, great Greek. What the Greeks did for the world was invent the flaw in the hero. Well, I mean, it probably happened before, but we know it best through the Greeks. What the Batman stories seem to do is show up these villains who kind of make sense so, yeah, what they're doing, a bit tragic but themselves. there's still something off that makes them kind of like us. Right. You know? Right, yeah. They're kind of limit cases of what yeah. happens to us when we do mm-hmm. things a certain and way. Because Raza Ghul has set himself up totally as someone who is above the fray. Yeah. 
But, but he's not but who, above the fray. But who's above the fray? Right. Yeah. Ultimately, who's above the fray? Name one human who's above yeah. the fray of living with each other. Nobody. Yeah. <laughs> and I point. like that. I like that too. So only a cynical man would call what these people have as lives. And again, that's not for him to decide. No. Yeah, Educate he... versus dominate. The, the great dichotomy between him and uh, Bruce and I wrote that that's actually more necessity for free speech. Because it's not up to you to decide. It's not up to anyone to decide what they want to hear. Okay, Rachel. Very limited role, I would say. Yeah, limited but important. And we can't help but point out that in Batman Begins, she's Katie Holmes. And in Dark Knight, she's Maggie Gyllenhaal. Yeah. And I don't know why they recast her other than... I I imagine it was Katie Holmes just didn't want to do it. Or maybe... Sorry, shouldn't cast aspersions on Katie Holmes. No, <laughs> we just don't Maybe know. the schedule didn't work out. Yeah. We don't know. And that's and, definitely and, not and something and we're going to look at. It's one of those weird, no, it's one of those weird things where you you kind of notice it, but you don't really notice it yeah. that much. Well, they're both great actresses. Yeah. Like, you would never mistake one for the other, but they look <laughs> no. similar enough, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah, like we said at the very start of the podcast, she's representing the guy who killed the Waynes, or not representing, sorry, she's making a deal with him to get a bigger fish. And her line to Bruce is, what chance does Gotham have if the good people do nothing? Which is a uh, paraphrasing of the Abraham Lincoln line, right? Yeah, all it takes for evil to prosper <laughs> yeah. is for good men to do nothing. And, you know, you can think what you want about someone doing what she's doing in the face of the person she's trying to help. But she is a very strong person. Like, her strength is shown in this when she goes by herself <laughs> to dr crane's lab i guess and then they see what he's she he takes her down to see what she's doing and like i mean there's a part of me that's like what are you doing yeah You're walking like, into why are you just hanging out but i mean if you think about it he is a doctor and like uh, then like she's probably not thinking that he's some super villain we know that but like she really has no clue mm-hmm. but the reason she is being so forthright about it is because she sees her city going to shit yes and she needs to do something about it and she knows, I mean, even like Gordon has that line, like in a city this bad, who is there to rat to? Like even the good guys are bad guys right. in <laughs> yeah, Gotham. Yeah. And yet she is stalwart, which is really cool. That's an archetype, I think even yeah. for, for her assistant DNS. Uh, but she has this one line that uh, was, I love when lines in movies remind me of philosophy. <laughs> so right. she has one line that says, she's talking to Bruce. It's what you do that defines you. And there's a line from Aristotle where he says, we are what we consistently do. Yeah. And my observation of our culture and time of era is that I think we are almost approaching a cult of identity. Yeah. Or like identity is the new sacred cow. What is your identity? Now, leaving aside if a person can even say what their own identity is, like if our brains are even able to apprehend all of that to just... (laughs) <laughs> trumpet it to the world as if it's a static thing <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> or even something that we have a lot of say over i actually have a slightly different opinion about it i actually think our identities it's not the prevailing notion i think our identities are what we would call a post hoc view of how we behave in the world <laughs> so you act in a certain like you do your week's worth of work And then on Sunday night, you look back and think, hmm, my week, like I did all these things. Like, what would that make me? Yeah. (laughs) You know? 
And so that's why I like Aristotle point. I was like, no, you aren't what you say you are. You are what you consistently do. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know, like it's a cliche and it's, you know how I feel about cliches, but so I'll put in the Emersonian term again, you, what you do speak so loud, I can't hear what you say. So I guess I'll put it this way. I'm not particularly interested in what people say about themselves. You're interested in what they do. I'm interested in what they do. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I like that that's echoed she's pretty, here. She's pretty clear on that, yeah. right? She's like... She goes into the lion's den. Yeah. She doesn't exactly know it's a lion's den, but she's know it's not a fucking chinchilla den. <laughs> she <laughs> knows that there be, are some antagonistic people here. And, fluffy. and she knows she lives in a city full of lions. Yeah. And yet she is going to be a Daniel and not renounce her principles. She's not going to be corrupted. And, and that, in a sense, when we think of when Batman says to Raz al Ghul, he's like... There are still good people in this town. She's one of the primary people he's thinking of, and Alfred, and then those those are the people he's thinking <laughs> exactly, of. Exactly, exactly. And so, yeah, her line: "When Gotham no longer needs Batman, maybe I'll see him again." So I don't know. I just um, I don't want to get myself into too much trouble, but I am not optimistic about where our culture's obsession with identity is going. I don't. No. Th- I don't think it's healthy or psychologically accurate. I think people find a lot more meaning in their life when they go pursue meaningful things, not when they say they are a meaningful thing. Ooh, there's a phrase I really like. Okay, I mean, I, so, I'm going to repeat it back to you. People get a lot more out of life when they pursue something that has meaning, not says that they are something with meaning. Yeah, and. I don't mean that in the way of trying to minimize the real feelings other people have about life and the real things they care about and their sincere when their sincerities and earnestnesses. But it's like that line from Copperfield, you don't flourish yourself in front of others. Yeah. And I think that there's a cultural currency right now to flourish your identity. And at some point it's ostentation. I'm not saying it's there yet, but it can get there. Just I think it might be there. Yeah, but it, so it's like twofold. It's like it's it's both not a pretty thing to go flourish yourself. And I think that people can do that with their so-called identities. But it's also, I don't think it's what give them a deeper satisfaction with life either. Yeah. Because I think it's pursuing meaningful things. I mean, and essentially, that's what we see... So to get over the pain and turmoil and basically PTSD, not just of having his parents die and not just having them murdered, but blaming himself for it, mm-hmm. how does how does he recover from the suffering of life? How does Batman respond to suffering? He says, well, the only thing I can do is go out there and try to make it less for others. Mm-hmm. And essentially, that's the most meaningful pursuit, however you pursue it. It's like, if your aim is actually a better world, Mm -hmm. you can do that in your own little way. Well, because imagine if 51% of the people in Gotham were like Rachel and Bruce, or like Batman. This is why Falcone has that line. Well, that's the power of fear. Yeah. The criminals of Gotham are not scared to abuse people, because... (laughs) They have the fear. And the antidote to that is people like Rachel. Yeah. <laughs> I would like, say. We're like, I'm not afraid, you know, even though I could die. Right? Who aren't caught up in 
less meaningful activities. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And maybe I'm at some level contradicting myself here because there's like a tension between your behavior, but then world as a symbol. I don't know. It's it's still beyond my grasp a little bit in terms of my thinking, but I feel I've always gravitated to that line from Aristotle. You are what you consistently do because there's a there there's an agency to that. Yeah, it's like like you you actually can yeah I can just work yourself out do of these the, things. Yeah, there isn't a pit. <laughs> well, foreshadowing for Dark Knight Rises. There isn't a pit you can get into that you can't also get yourself out of. Right. Yes. <laughs> so I like that about Rachel. Just a couple little last things here. Alfred and Gordon. Alfred has this line. Just know that those... (laughs) I won't try to do a Michael Caine. Right, yeah, okay. Just know that there are those of us who care about what you do with your future. Yeah. This is so important for people. It's a profound line, yeah. And I mean, like I do working with kids, there's nothing more important than that. Yeah, like, because if nobody cares about your future, then like, what are you going to... Yeah, yeah. And it's inspiring. Well, the other thing that Alfred says that I just love is, you know, he, he, he'll he be speaking. There's, I think, three times this happens. But he says, you still haven't given up on me yet, have you, Alfred? And he's like, never. Right? And that's yeah, that's the friends you need. That's the people you need in your life who... When, when he saves Bruce from the fire. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know? Like, that's the friend you need is the person who's never, never will I give up on you. Also, how funny is that scene... Where Bruce kicks everyone out yeah. of the manor by just being so rude to he's, them. He's like, you're all hangers But on. he's really saving their life. Yeah. That is actually more great foreshadowing for how everyone's going to hate Batman for what all he's doing is saving their life. Yeah. Holy, that just occurred to me now. Oh, man. Uh, Nolan, so Nolan is a crafter of it's tales. so good. <laughs> yeah. Also, <laughs> if you haven't watched Memento before... Pause this podcast. <laughs> Go stop watch it. that right Go away. Go watch Memento. It's definitely more important than listening to us. <laughs> but then uh, Gordon doesn't have a lot in this movie and compared to the other ones, but he helps Bruce as a kid. And I liked this because it's someone kind from the beginning so that even in a corrupt place, Gotham is worth saving. Like you pointed out before, and you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. Where, uh, who is it? Abraham? No. Yeah, Abraham? Is bargaining with God about yeah, Sodom so, and Gomorrah, yeah, and they're like fifty, and he's and, 20, and he gets him down 40. to if he gets him down to ten, if I think. ten, and yeah. they can't even find ten. <laughs> but I mean, Lot was a good yeah, man, so there so was at least him. one. But I like how this is Batman's attitude: is that because there's even one or two good or three, I got four. At this point, Batman would know of four good people in Gotham. Four good people is worth risking your own life for a city of whatever it is 12 million or something you know again in an archetypal story what a powerful motif that is because it's so how would i like i have had this feeling too where even though it's easier to remember the negative things and the positive things i think one great interaction with a person can make your day to such an extent that all the other things kind of fade away. And that is true. You know? That is 100% oh, true. here. Just occurred to me. There's a great example from The Office. It's like the second ever episode. It's the... it's the, Yeah, it's the Diversity Day episode. So I, I believe that's the second episode. Maybe the third in season one. And the whole episode, Jim is having a bad day. He's missing out on his sales. He's just kind of off. 
things aren't working out. He always has to get interrupted. Dwight got the better of him a few times. And then Dwight stole his client, basically. Right. Yeah. So it's been <laughs> a bad day for Jim. But at the end, while she's falling asleep, Pam leans onto his shoulder and falls asleep and that, for like a few and seconds. And, and at the end, he's like, yeah, this is a pretty good day. <laughs> Do you know? Yeah. And I, well, I think all of that, and then the few good people is what I meant earlier when I was saying, like, if a soul is loved by individuals, it does not need to be liked by crowds. Yeah. Or you can even just leave it like, if there are individuals worth loving, you'll go save a city of millions. Yeah. Which, <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, we could all hope that we would be so noble, right? <laughs> well, and we we're, not all <laughs> we're, not, Wayne. we're not all Bruce Wayne. But I honestly believe one of the reasons we do this podcast so we believe that there's a little bit of Bruce in everybody. Yeah, yeah, and we be- believe that if you if you go through the right steps, but then it's not just about becoming the disciplined, self-perfecting, personally analyzing person. Mm-hmm. It is more than that. It's about be- making the right decisions with that power. Mm-hmm. Because once he becomes the best. There's still Raz Al Ghul, who's also the best, mm-hmm. and, and he still has and a fight. Just has a very different worldview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get. I just loved in this movie how Batman was ready for that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was so good. A couple other things. That Batcave scene is so cool. Yes. Just cinematically, it's yeah. so cool. That's kind of that is like the the artwork for the posters mm-hmm. that they had. Yeah. Gotham is portrayed so well as such a gross city, except yeah. for the rich, yeah. which again makes it so meaningful that Bruce still feels the need to save it. I heard he can disappear. This is something that's said over the. Oh, I forgot to talk about this with the legend. I'm really super curious about. Okay, well, what are the things happening in our world now that are going to be legendary? Elon one Musk. day, yeah, probably Elon Musk, but. I mean, I don't mean in the jokey way that Neil Patrick Harris says it in How I Met Your Mother, but it's like Robin Hood is a legend, right? Like Robin Hood is, as far as we know, a story based on a real person or at least a couple real people that, you know, every generation, there's an extra layer added on to it, you know? Elon Musk is a good example, but I just wonder like what else there might be. Or even from a recent era, like what's something from a hundred years ago that... I mean, it's a lot harder now because we have, years ago, we have a way better that'd be, that'd be ability better. to track actual historical accuracies about things. So, a hundred years ago, yeah. Oh, here's a good one. I just occurred to me. I mean, this is not as much, and I'd want to hear more from Americans, but I bet you, like, there's a there's a mythos and a legend surrounding the founding fathers of the yes. United States. Right, and they were so, a, a group of people who got together with an idea, and yeah. they said, "Let's Jefferson, this idea. Madison, yeah. Adams, uh, Washington." Now they're just people, and they're people in very <laughs> recent memorable history, but there's almost like a sacrosanctness given to their ability. Did you know that the Founding Fathers are closer to the fall of Byzantium than they are to us? Well, I do now. <laughs> when was the fall of like Byzantium? 1490 or something. Oh. Well, see, that's why history is so it's so hard to pick apart, because... Columbus to the founding of the United States or yeah, like, was almost 300 years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like a know? long time. Like it's a long time. But if you like the history of the Americas. Yeah. And you're like, oh. But anyway, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm a bit of a nerd for the idea of like, well, what's going to be a legend? Me. I, one of the one things day. that some of my friends used to tease me about, but I, I think is an important thing to think about is what is going to be the next big thing? 
right? If people people who were paying attention knew Google would be big, and they and they worked off that assumption. And this goes back to what you're talking about with plans. If you kind of know what's coming, or you have an inkling, or you get a sense that mm-hmm. no, this is the direction things are going. Then you can plan ahead of it and you can react to it as opposed to being mm-hmm. a passive observer or a passive participant. Yeah, yeah, you can yeah. be an active participant. So well, I think one of the things we learned from Batman in, in this movie is knowing where things are going, knowing how people think, potentially knowing how your enemies think is incredibly valuable in achieving your goals. <laughs> yes, that's for sure. That kind of works all the time. Yeah. Except the end of Dark Knight Rises, he is actually supremely surprised at the actual villain yes (laughs) but anyway two last things one very short the little kid in this movie did you recognize him no it's jack gleason who is the actor who plays king joffrey no way in uh, game of thrones yeah (laughs) because this movie was made six years before the first game of thrones season so he was probably only like six or seven, maybe. Wow! In this, and he's he's the kid in. They're called the Narrows. It's like the slum yes, area yeah. where the Arkham Asylum is, and he's yeah, he's the kid that sees Batman and gets given the yeah yeah. Oh, yeah. that's so really that's the cool. same actress. I thought that was a fun little connection. And then this last thing, like I think it's a really big topic, so I don't necessarily need to exhaust it. I just kind of want to put it in your mind for maybe the other movies because I've noticed it in them too, but. So, Batman's compassion for Ra's al Ghul almost gets him killed, right? So, it's in a sense, it's foolish. Why did you save his life? Mm-hmm. When you kind of know he's going to do this. But, this seems trite, but I, I think there's something to build off here. It's like, well, no, that's actually what makes Batman better. And only the hard work allows for moral or intellectual authority. In Batman, Batman only gets to have the final say because he's the one willing to do the most work to not destroy. And I am enamored with this nascent idea of the harder going for the harder job in a social way, because that's actually what allows you to be the boss. Like you're the one who's allowed to give your, it's kind of like how Daniel Dennett in philosophy talks about degrees of freedom, where he says, well, we actually might hold someone like Elon Musk or prime minister, <laughs> let's say. The standard they're held to is different. Yeah, because right? the Be- job is harder. Because the job is harder, but it also means that you have a higher degree of freedom, which allows you to be a more advantaged citizen yeah. of the country or... Uh, he says, yeah, like, we expect things out of people without a mental incapability more than we expect out of someone who is mentally disabled. Yes. But part of that is because you get to be a more thoroughgoing citizen. Yeah, it's just, yeah, you you have, like you said, more freedom. Yeah. I like that. And, and so that degree of freedom in philosophy, I don't know, like, I want to start thinking and talking about the idea of translating that into the reason why Batman is better it's because he tries to fix instead of destroy. And Raza, like, here's the thing. Raza Ghul has a, has a ghost of a point when he says, well, it's just easier to destroy it and start again. And Batman says, yes, I know. It is much harder to do it my way. But doing it my way with the, all the work that it takes 
is what allows me, or he, he would never say it this way, but I guess I would say it in the way that the people who work harder to do the harder things that are messier to get something done better for everyone are the ones who deserve to have the say. Yeah, it goes back to kind of the, the theory of capitalism with the greater the risk you're willing to take, your reward should be commiserate with that. Like when people take big risks, like mm-hmm. they should be compensated for that. Like when it's your capital on the line, mm-hmm. you should make more off of it than the guy who's just working for you. Yeah, and you can put it in historical perspectives too. Like I'm thinking of Wilberforce or even Thomas Paine when they talked about freeing the slaves. A lot of the backlash against them wasn't just moral it was like well how are we gonna have an economy yeah (laughs) and how are we gonna make all this work like we're gonna have to totally re we're gonna have to revolutionize our economy if we're gonna free the slaves (laughs) like that definitely was in the conversation well yeah well that was why there was a war and i just think that it's that's true but it's on the people to figure it out because it's the, the hard thing that's yeah, good. Dude. It's the hard thing that's good. And the people who actually take on that burden are, I think, the people who might be the best candidates to be deserving of authority. Right. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so... And we see that, yeah, developing in, in the Batman. Mm-hmm. Where What would be an example of that? I guess, interestingly enough, we even in this one, we see that he, you know... He becomes Lieutenant Gordon because yeah, exactly because, because he's trying yeah. to fix things mm-hmm. and he's willing to fight for fixing things. And I would also put, and this is a little bit different and more complicated, I think, but I would throw that under what I'm under the umbrella of what I'm calling the liberal conscience that Batman is representing, because Batman is saying, "No, I'm not going to go destroy Gotham. I'm going to fix it." Razagul saying, "Well, that seems way harder than and my in solution. Fact, impossible. And in fact, yeah. impossible." And Batman's like, "You're right, but I'm still going to do it." And I think that that's why Batman not even just gets to have the authority, but deserves respect from people because he isn't. It's like that. That harder job is is what I'm struggling to find the right word, and I don't know if the right word exists, but. That harder job of him fixing Gotham is what makes him admirable. Gives him a sense of, oh yeah. And gives him that grandeur that he is why you would want to be of the type of person who wants to fix over destroy. Well, and I think, uh, yeah, going back on that a little bit, but thinking about it, why is why is it noble to do things like that because it is far greater to have like even failed at a hard task. Like I'd rather fail at a hard task than succeed at an easy one Mm -hmm. because in the proper mental state, you can learn from failure of a, of a hard task. It's very hard to learn from successes because you don't know where it could have gone wrong. Mm -hmm. And this is why I think of all the archetypes one of the ones I'm most interested in making a case for is that I think Batman might be one of the best pop culture representations of liberal philosophy. Yeah. In that sense. Because he's going and trying to fix the Because thing he'll do broken. the harder thing without killing. Yeah. To fix something. 
even if it means, yeah, it'd probably be easier and maybe even in some sense better to kill Falcone. But that's violating a principle that if you set that precedence, you're just going to have anarchy. Yeah, and, and chaos. How, are, how are you any and how And how are you going to make the world better through anarchy? You know, and there's people who think the world would be better through yeah. anarchy. And I feel like just read a little Hobbes. <laughs> That's my take. I, I'm sure anyone who's philosophically savvy can know I fall much more on the Hobbes interpretation of humanity than on the Rousseau. <laughs> yes. Well, I think Rousseau was a bit of a romantic. <laughs> yeah, and he was not a good dude either. No. So... Anyway, I want to definitely continue that no, motif I like more that. in the other I'm one. I to think about that more as I because, watch the next one, too. Because I do feel it starts to even... It's even more... Well, I think maybe because The Dark Knight is a more famous movie than Batman Begins, you notice it more, or it's talked about more in the culture. So you, I was looking... I, I just felt like it was more in that movie because of how great that movie is. So. Yeah. So anyway, here begins the Dark Knight trilogy. Uh, this has been another episode of Really True Fiction. I'm Luke Mason. And my name's David Parker. And we hope that you can develop your liberal conscience too. <laughs> <laughs> See you later, everybody.